Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. I'm your host, Maeve, and I'm very excited to kick off this new season with journalist and author Jessica Luther. There's so much good stuff to get to with Jessica that I'm skipping this week in sports, but it's going to be worth it. So without further ado, let's get to the main event. I am so thrilled to welcome Jessica Luther to the show. Jessica is a journalist who regularly covers the intersection of sports and culture, particularly sexual violence, uh, what you've previously called the saddest beat in sports. Uh, You have recently published a book called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really been looking forward to this. Thank you for having me and for talking about this topic. So in the beginning of the book, there's a span of about four pages that document the 115 cases you found involving college football players and sexual assault since 1974. And what struck me about this passage was how easy it was to skim over it because the stories were so familiar and repetitive. Of all of the cases that you looked at, is there perhaps one in particular that stands out because of this kind of predictability that really fits the script to a T of how these situations play out? Um, I mean, that's a great question. And I do want to say, I actually think the list is now up to 120 something, might be closer to 125. Um, (laughs) Which again, I always like to say whenever this number comes up, that's across four decades. It's not a ton, but these are specifically cases that were reported in the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is an important caveat. Uh, yes. It's an incredibly underreported crime, and then only so many make it into the media. And then my ability to find stories from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, even into the 2000s, was very limited to stories that actually hit national media. As far as one that hits it to a T, you know, I think the case, if you read the book, I think it's pretty clear that the Winston case, Jameis Winston at Florida State, my first draft of the book had way more stuff about that case in it. Mm-hmm. And my editor was concerned that it would read like a book only about him and, or not him, but the case around him. Right. And I didn't want that. Like that wasn't the point of the book. So I had to really dial it back. But I think one of the reasons for me, I mean, part of it is I went to Florida state. I used to be in diehard, like for most of my life, I was a diehard Florida state football fan. And so there's a personal aspect for me. Uh, my own personal journey with my team and my own fandom sort of wrapped into that case. But I also just think it works. Like it just, it's a really useful case for talking about a whole lot of issues that come up around this problem, Uh, which include the fact that he was not really investigated by the police. You know, they sort of sat on it. It was the media pressure that, brought it to the fore 11 months later, and that's when the state's attorney got a hold of it. One of the things about college football is it sort of heightens all these problems. So that's not, it's not uncommon for investigators, for police to not do a good job with these kinds of cases. You don't have to be reporting someone well-known in the community for that to be true, but it's sort of heightened when you get someone who is well-known, like a college football player, and specifically in this case, like, the rock star of the team by the time the media got a hold of it. 
for me as someone who focuses a lot on how the media handles these cases, it was it's exactly sort of the worst case scenario for how it played out. So as soon as the state's attorney announced that he was not going to press charges, which was not so surprising because it's very hard to investigate this kind of crime 11 months later, which is what his office was left to do. Media, sports media in particular, was ready to move on. Like, this is the potential Heisman winner, which he did go on to win the Heisman. Potential team that's going to win the national championship, which they went on to win the national championship. You know, everyone wanted to get back to that. Like, they wanted to focus on that. And there was immediate, like, day of press conference where the hot take was like, okay, it's time to move on. We're all finished here. And I immediately thought like, well, what about this woman? Like, is she finished? Like, is it just done for her now? And it's turned out that no, none of it was done. There's, it's actually ongoing today. So this was 2013, November, 2013, when the first stuff around it broke and it next year, there's going to be a civil case. um, If it makes it into the courtroom, so and like, the incident in question happened in December 2012. Right. And so, so we're now going on like almost four years. Right. And so it turned out, one, there was amazing reporting to be done. Walt Bogdanich and then, and then him and Mike McIntyre at the New York Times did incredible investigative reporting about uh, Florida State and its athletic department and, its tal- and the Tallahassee Police Department because they didn't believe the story was done. There were many questions to be asked of what had happened and they continued to ask them. So we got a lot of the reporting, but it also turned out that like Title IX at FSU. So, you know, Title IX is this federal law that mandates that everyone should have equal access to education and not be discriminated against via their gender, right? Um, right. And so under Title IX, schools are supposed to investigate sexual harassment or violence um, perpetrated by a student because the idea is that another student can't go to school if they have to share space with someone who's been violent and that, and therefore that infringes on their civil rights. Right. And so they hadn't done that yet. So that didn't happen for another year. And then she ended up suing both the school and him. He's countersued. So this has gone on for a really long time. And in the middle of all of it, you get the sort of, he made a mistake, or that was bad behavior. Um, we recently had, a, you know, he went first in the NFL draft, and there was a piece sometime recently-ish about, like, his redemption that didn't even right. really mention the violence. Like, it was weird. It was, like, redeemed from what? Um, right. So it just is the kind of, everything around the case is exactly the worst that it could be. I just, one other thing, like very specifically about her case is that she has now told her story seven or eight times. I think by the time I wrote the book, maybe it was seven. I don't know if she's had to tell it again. This is really important to understanding sexual violence cases. He has yet to tell his story in any, in anywhere, which is his right. And he is correct legally to keep his mouth shut. That's a good legal move on his part. So he was never, this is important to understand, like he was never questioned by the police. He was not questioned by the state's attorney. He did not speak at his Title IX hearing. He had a prepared statement. He answered one question about consent and it was weird. Um, But he's never had to go through the process of in public, in a public space, 
outlining what happened that night. And she's up right. to like seven times that she's done being this. dissected in that very public way. Yeah. And so what's happened is people have picked apart her story over and over because it's there to be picked apart because this is how it works is that the person who reports has to continue to tell, they have to tell that story immediately when it happens two days later, a month later, in her case, 11 months later, that is the other piece for me about this case that makes it sort of an exemplar of how we think through these kind of cases and how they get treated in the public. Um, you know, if this does make it to trial next year and he has to be deposed for the civil suit, that would be the first time since December 2012 that he has had to tell a story. And that's a big part of that's so common. And we don't often think about the fact that only one side, because of how the process works, because of how due process works, which is an important concept in the in the justice system, um, right. the, the pressure that puts on the person who's reported and how they tell their story. And it's we're so primed not to believe them. So it instantly becomes a game of like picking it apart. So yeah, there's much about the Winston case that works really well for talking about this stuff, which is part of why I continue to do it. Right. It has... It has the intersection of systematic biases, both in how the university system works, how the police department works, how the media works. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this is a theme that came up throughout your book about kind of the individual versus the system. And, you know, we focus a lot on the player and we focus a lot on the accuser, on the individuals. But you're really unrelenting in this book in reminding the readers that there are coaches and faculty and administrators who are often excused entirely from the narrative of who's culpable and who's not. In terms of how the collegiate system in particular favors and protects the powerful, um, how, how is the collegiate environment set up in that way? Oh, man. Well, it's a moneymaker. And I feel like money is sort of the answer to all these questions about how it works. Just starting on the basic level of college football makes people a lot of money. So it has mm -hmm. a lot of power. So except we, for the players. Except for the players, <laughs> which I think is a really important point. And I can come back to that. But, um, you know, college football players, especially at these sports, um, state schools, often make way, way more money than the university, university presidents do, right? The coaches are sometimes the highest paid state employee in the entire state. Yeah. You know, football brings in for a lot of places a whole lot of money. It sustains a lot of athletic departments. Um, but these coaches have personal incentives then. There's two, there's two sides to it. One, coaches have very bad job security. It's very easy for them to be fired. And on the other side, though, they also build into their contracts bonuses, you make a bowl game, you make a playoff, you make the national championship, you win the national championship, you as a coach make more money. Mm -hmm. So you are invested in keeping these kids on the field and whatever that takes. So university presidents themselves are invested in these guys remaining on the field. They want, you know, they get good alumni support. They get, you know, the sort of recognition. They keep their coaches happy. They keep the program making money, all these sort of things. They're there's a lot of investment in these players continuing to play. And like you said, not getting paid as a system. They just want to keep these guys on the field. Like that's the entire point of all of this. And, and that all ties back to money. And there's no way to sort of, there's no other way to put that. Something that you wrote about in the book, which I hadn't given much thought to, 
but in how kind of coaches steer clear is um, there's there's a tension when players transfer schools, especially if there are you know charges against them or disciplinary violations or whatever. But I hadn't really thought before about how coaches also use this kind of like transfer loophole to avoid kind of responsibility or continued questioning um, that they get a lot of second chances and third chances and fourth chances as well. Um, so how does how does this kind of like revolving door of coaching positions keep the status quo as in favor of players remaining on the field and coaches keeping their jobs? Yeah, well, we are so the I mean, it's something I don't quite understand, but there is this complete willingness like, yeah, the coaches will have lots of trouble wherever they are and they'll bounce. They'll bounce to the next place. And then it's like, okay, clean slate. We will right. begin anew. And it's like, why? <laughs> Wait a second. Why are we starting anew based on what we know from the last place? Um, right. And this is, you know, of course, true for players as well. People ask me again, you know, how do you feel about Winston playing in the NFL? I'm like, well, that's just how it is. Like, this, he's good. He's playing in the NFL, you know? The person that I have a hard time with is Jimbo Fisher at Florida State, who, mm. you know, I think handled so much of the stuff around Winston very poorly. And, it, you know, and then we know now sort of the relationship between the football program and the Tallahassee PD. You know, those are the kind of things I can't let go of when I yeah. think about Florida State football. And Fisher's still there. Like, I... We need to be focusing on these guys that are in charge of these systems. One, you know, one part of it is that we are so obsessed with this idea that coaches can have such a positive influence on their players. We're movies, movie after movie, movie after movie, Friday Night Lights, you know, like so much of that is about the positive influence that a coach creates via the locker room and the team. But then as soon as something bad happens... It's like, oh, no, 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 that's an individual divorced from the context of the entire thing. And that's a lot of what I'm trying to do with the book is say, no, that's not, of course, the perpetrator should be held accountable. They're responsible for their actions. I mean, but that's not enough. That's not enough if we're really going to try to mitigate and, you know, in a dream world, eradicate this kind of violence. And that's what I'm pushing for is just focusing on the fact that there's a larger system at place and these, you know, gosh, man, these coaches. Yeah. And, and, you know, not just the coaches, but the athletic directors, mm-hmm. the, like all of the people that they turn into scapegoats. I mean, there's this case at Tennessee this year. And one of the things that, you know, eight women came forward to sue the school um, reporting, I think it was all football players. I have to, I'd have to look again to see if that's right. But one of the people that they talk about in the lawsuit is David Hart, who's the athletic director at Tennessee now, who was an athletic director at Florida State. <laughs> and part of what they argue is that, I mean, I think he was sued for sexual harassment or for creating an atmosphere at Florida State where sexual harassment happened. I mean, I, I for someone like me, when I saw that in the lawsuit, I was like, of course, like, of yeah. course, that would follow this athletic director from one school to another. But of course, it's not just these individual players. And that was very much the Tennessee lawsuit was sort of in the vein of the kind of work that I do, where it was very much like Tennessee has a problem in its culture here. And the people at the top of the chain 
are responsible for maintaining that culture, for not trying to disrupt it in any way. Yeah. And the thing that is double down frustrating about all of this is like, if there is a NCAA rules violation about providing a player with money or food or clothing or any special privileges, like that is such a big deal. And how could this have ever happened? And the outcry surrounding the rules about amateurism and student athletes, like you would think that that was the worst thing that a student or a coach could ever do is like, let somebody get a free meal. But then with sexual assault allegations, it's all like swept under the rug. This isn't a real problem. These are quote unquote, off the field issues. Let's focus on the game. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the NCAA. And I don't, it's a strange thing for me because in the book, I definitely advocate for them to do something, um, anything. But at the same time, I don't really think even if they did something, they'd be good at it. Um, (laughs) But I'm bothered by their sort of pretending that they they like to pretend that they care about this issue when in fact they don't. And, or there's no evidence that they actually do. Then there's no concrete actionable thing. And they're kind of empty enforcers. Yeah. And I, you know, I struggle because I don't, I don't think the answer to any of this is how we punish. But at the same time, these guys, these very powerful people who are being, you know, they're making decisions based on money. I do think one way that you get them to change how they're behaving is you hit them in their pocketbooks, right? Which is why we find teams, why we take away financial incentives for them, why we take away scholarships to recruits, those kinds of things. Like we hit them in their pocketbook when they break rules, NCAA rules, because the idea is that that will work, that will change behavior on the front end. Yeah. And I think another part of this that certainly applies to the Winston case and to many other situations is this issue of race and how we apply race to our understanding of race to these situations. So you write this really excellent chapter in the book on race. And on the one hand, there are these really strong motives for a university or an athletic department to protect their assets, which is basically the free labor of disproportionately black players. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, by exploiting racial racial stereotypes and our, our trigger belief that Black, young black men are easily capable of being criminals, mm-hmm. that by exploiting those kinds of stereotypes, the university can distract from the larger system and the people in power who are disproportionately white men and excuse these things as isolated events rather than as symptomatic of a larger issue. So when these two competing forces meet, what happens in that kind of gray area of how we interpret and leverage race. Yeah. This is such an important issue for me in that I worry a lot that my work is contributing to stereotyping black men as criminals. And Mm -hmm. so this is part of like, I think I have to always be addressing it head on. And it was important for me to do this in the book, especially because I wanted to move away from I mean, I actually went through at one point and took out as many players names as I thought I could get away with with maintaining the narrative and making sure it didn't confuse the reader because I just don't think it's about them. Like I do think on an individual case, again, you know, we have to look at holding that person that's done the violence responsible 
But we do that. That's what we're so obsessed with is talking about these individual cases, picking them apart, talking about the two people on each side of them. That's work that's already being done. So I didn't want, you know, I don't want to recreate that work. I want to talk about the system in place, which, as you said, is mainly a bunch of white dudes from university presidents, coaches, athletic directors, head of NCAA and sports media, like just a bunch of white dudes. Yeah, I think it's too easy when we I think there's two things that happen with individual cases and, and I bring that and they're in the, the race chapter together. There's two narratives that are really simple for us to latch onto. One, as you said, is a sort of easy idea that black men are criminals. Like we are, we're willing to talk about criminality if we can put a black face on it. But the other side of that is that we have the narrative that we've talked about before women lying. And so these two come into play immediately. And often we focus almost extensively on the woman as liar and I think you have a quote in the book you you write who else uh, talking about kind of how people interpret these events you say who else would commit such a crime if not young black men who else would lie about having sex after the fact if not young women yeah exactly and so but there is then this incredible tension with the fact that they want these guys to keep playing ball and so while you know if it gets a like if the story gets away from them or you know the evidence mounts against the player or whatever it's pretty easy to like sort of tip it over into these other narratives of like well criminality you know (laughs) this is what we expect this is what happens uh but before we get there there is an entire system in place to protect these guys often black men young men from having to interact with the criminal justice system which is pretty opposite of the history, the horrific racist history of this country and the way that sexual violence has been used uh, to punish black men, even you know, just accusations of it without any evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it is a while, I mean, that tension is so critical in, in unmasking the fact that they are using these guys. And right. so I always, I like to talk, I like to note that while my book is pretty much about how these programs don't care about these people who report, which in the book is exclusively women, the women who report this, they also do not care about these guys. And I think that when we talk about, as you said, these two things, these two, I don't know, narratives around black men as athletes and then black men as criminals, that tension is so, it just, it becomes so clear that that's what's happening here is that they're as useful as they, you know, they use them up. And then as soon as they use them up, there's sort of a new racial stereotype that can step in. Right. That there's this entire system that begins with teens, colleges, the NCAA profiting off of what are increasingly black and, uh, lower socioeconomic from lower socioeconomic backgrounds right kind of making them the exception giving them opportunity quote unquote to get an education quote unquote while they play football basketball those are the two main ones but then putting them in these positions where if they misstep they're the only ones to blame and there's well and there's no safety net and there's no accountability for the people that put them in that position. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and we're so willing as a society to just sort of go along with this 
in right. ways that make me very uncomfortable. And I will say, like, I loved how you just said the thing about them getting their education, right? Like that yeah. this is how we hold this up. And I, I, there was a recent, and by recent, I mean in the last three, four years, UPenn, University of Pennsylvania report that showed that black and black football players and basketball players actually don't get their degrees Mm -hmm. that of all the groups of student athletes, they're the ones least likely to actually get a degree in the end. Mm -hmm. So the sort of the very thing that they're promised that we all use as the excuse for why they get to abuse their bodies and their brains for these universities isn't actually even true for a lot of them. And it's so the entire system is so exploitative of both the players, but then also the thing I'm writing about, also these women, these other, many of them, other students on the same campus. So yeah, it's really important, I think, to continue to focus on how exploitative the system is for the people at the bottom of it and how that protects and makes us look away from the guys at the top who are really the money makers and really controlling a lot of what's happening. Another, you could call it another character in this book um, that we've been touching on, but I'd like to address more directly is the justice system. And you write in the book that there are, quote, limits of basing how we talk about violence almost exclusively on how the law and courts handle it. Um, So what are the biases that are at play at the justice in the justice system when these cases of sexual assault arise and the default is to accept whatever outcome happens from the legal system as opposed to a university investigation. Yeah, I think I have a really, I struggle a lot with people who say, why, why are universities investigating this? Leave this up to the experts, like the police. And anytime someone says that, I think, oh, well, you clearly have no concept of how the police investigate this crime and how the entire criminal justice system actually, like, handles it, you know, yeah. uh, what the outcome is, which is that very few rapists actually ever go to jail. Um, and there's lots of reasons for this, including that there's so much bias within the system, which again, is going to be just a bunch of dudes. I mean, there's <laughs> it's like any good space, um, apparently. <laughs> and so there's a move right now. So there are a lot of cops who respond to the scene and they expect this woman to give them a linear account of the trauma she just experienced. And like, she can't do it. I mean, traumatic brains just don't work that way. A lot of the time they can, that can happen. But a lot of the time they can't get all the details out. They don't remember them at that moment. Their brain has blocked them or they tell it out of order. That's really common. And that then confuses police. Cause then when the detective shows up five days later to do their interview, she's remembered something new or the order of events that she told five days ago don't match exactly the one she's telling now that looks suspicious, all those bias, you know, all these ideas of like women lie. It's so hard to report. And I just think people don't have any sort of sense of the hell of, of reporting and being under, as soon as you walk in to say that this has happened to you, 
it's very likely that you become as much a suspect as the person you're reporting in that you could be a liar. Yeah. And so you're going up against, and this is true with law enforcement, but this could be like, you think about these women, like they could also be feeling this from their friends and their family. Mm-hmm. Like there could be a lot of people, their professors, people at their university, um, a lot of people in their lives questioning them. And then on yeah. top of it to have people who are supposed to protect you be doing that too. And, and so this works its way all the way through the system. So district attorneys will do this too. There was this, you know, there was an NFL player, Darren Sharper, who has confessed or um, pleaded guilty or whatever the right terminology is legally uh, to raping multiple women across multiple States in a sort of spree. And there was a great pro publica, New Orleans advocate piece where they, you know, the district attorneys were like, well, he was too famous. Like we just, we just didn't feel like we, it it had to be more solid evidence than what we had because he's too famous. And so you get the, you know, you get district attorneys who won't move forward with it. You get grand juries that won't indict. You get juries that won't convict. You get judges that won't sentence in the way that we would expect them to. It's sort of all those levels and survivors pay attention. So they're, they're hyper aware of how someone else has been treated within the system and therefore less likely to report mm-hmm. because they've seen right. So this idea that the legal system will answer for, well, that we will have a satisfactory outcome, like that we will all feel like we know what has happened right. based on whatever comes out through the legal system, it's just a really unfair way of talking about this kind of violence. If you know anything about what it's like to report and how this actually works in real life. I think that you also touched upon the most frustrating part to me is that the easy route for teams and NCAA and, you know, universities is to just rely on the justice system because the chances are good that it will work out in their favor. Yes. You know, AKA that like the player won't be found guilty and can return to the team. Absolutely. And, and, and once again, we're not talking about anything beyond that, beyond that player. Right. 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 And that like, but the reality of it is that universities could set their own standards and could better impose those standards and consequences. Yet, it's much easier to just say, oh, well, we'll let the justice system handle this because mm-hmm. the outcome is just going to be better for them. Right. And, and you can just latch onto it as if right. like it isn't a solid answer as if it is. Yeah. I have such, I have such a hard time with it. Um, yeah. There was a, there was a quote that I really liked. Um, you spoke to a professor at Washington state named uh, David Leonard Mm-hmm. And he had this really great, great quote, which I thought summed it up. He said, um, don't mistake a lack of a trial or, convi- or a conviction as exoneration. Differentiate between the decisions of the criminal justice system plagued by misogyny, sexism, racism, and countless other ideologies that are antithetical to justice and discussion of justice, fairness, and combating issues of domestic violence. At the same time, don't take an arrest or an accusation as a conviction. Right. Just this idea that like the legal system can in itself just be this like black hole of of proceedings and confusion that to the average person 
it's easy to say, oh, well, there's no legal conviction, so we can move on. Whereas really, like, what it takes to get a conviction is such a barrier. Yeah. I think a lot of why people don't like to engage this topic is exactly sort of what David gets at in that quote. He's so smart, by the way. You should read everything David Leonard writes. Um, (laughs) But one of the things is that we often end up in a space where there's no satisfactory outcome. We just never know in a way that we would maybe feel confident in how we've reacted to the case. And I think, again, this is part of why focusing on the individual is going to leave us, is going to get us almost nowhere most of the time. So it's much more productive and I think to look at this systemically, but when you start to look at it like as an entire thing at once, it's yeah. so much harder to dismiss and to say, well, there's not something going on here that yeah. needs to be interrogated much more. And there need something needs to be done in, in this space. So and it's like the perfect storm of all of our worst impulses. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so Absolutely. to extricate any of those from one another is like, okay, how do you remove money from sexism, from racism, from power, from nostalgia and tradition and like what people love? It's just, it's like, well, okay. So I was about to say, where do you even start? But then luckily (laughs) (laughs) the whole back third of your book (laughs) is exactly about kind of proposed solutions. And I actually really appreciated that. Because so often the conversation just ends at like, well, here we've documented the problem instead of, and here's what we do about it. Yeah. Um, so, so two things on the solution front. The first is that you put a lot of responsibility on the media to be part of the solution by, mm. by being more responsible in their coverage. So as a member of the media yourself, um, where, where does that begin and, and how has your own reporting evolved as you've become more aware of the contextual issues that surround sexual assault? Well, yeah, I think I, okay. So I did the, the last third of the book because I felt like it would be too sad. Like it's too hard to just write about the problem. I needed something to sort of lift myself up as much as the book, you know, and, and how we talk about this issue. I think that there's sort of, two basic things that should happen and can happen. Um, You know, sports guys often work beats, you know, Mm -hmm. and then suddenly they are, someone on their beat has this kind of, this is, you know, they're reported as having done this kind of violence and they're thrown into this other topic that they don't know a lot about. And I want to stress that like, this is, the amount of knowledge that you have to have to write on this well is mm-hmm. is extraordinary. So yeah. for me, to, when I think about like a college case, like I have to understand, you do have to understand the sport and the place and the role that football plays and everything. But you also have to understand, as I said before, you have to understand what consent is. You have to understand how trauma affects everything. You have to understand how police respond what, um, what Title IX is, what schools should be doing, what instead they often do, what it is abusers say when they right. get caught in order to deflect, um, you know, what a civil case is versus a 
criminal case, how to read a civil lawsuit, how to read police reports, what's in a police report, what's not, you know, all these kinds of things. So of course, if like your job is to report on basketball, (laughs) then like suddenly you're writing about sexual violence. That's, you know, that's a struggle. So one thing is, I think that would just change everything. It's two and they're related. One is that you can't center the athlete in whatever you write. Mm -hmm. You just can't. Like, that's not going to be the whole story. And I think sports guys are really familiar with that. They're trained to put the athlete or the coach or the team in the center of whatever they're writing. So suddenly it's off-field violence and they don't, they still do that. Except that then often leaves out the person who's reported or, yeah. And the violence that's been reported. So you don't get any of that. And, and the other thing about that is that makes sense to me. As much as I critique that that happens, it makes sense to me that it does. Because there's two sides. There's a side of, like, as we said before, like for someone like Winston, when that case broke, everyone knew him. Like these beat yeah. writers, they, they probably had interviewed him. They probably, you know, they might have had casual conversations off the record jokes, you know, like whatever. They, they probably right. have a rapport, an understanding of him as a person. They have an understanding of him as a player. They probably understand how he works as a teammate, like all these kinds of relationships that, as a source that you might want to protect. Yes. And you see him as a full person because that's what you have because of your interaction with him. The other side is this anonymous person who you don't know anything about except that they've disrupted this other thing that you're normally working on. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that it's hard then to balance that when it comes time to write your narrative for the story. But I don't actually care. I don't care that it's hard. <laughs> we, have to, <laughs> I, like, we have to stop doing it. It's not fair to the story. It's not fair. It's not, it's bad journalism. Yeah. Uh, you know, like we can argue about sort of you know, people think like I'm an activist or an advocate or like doing advocacy journalism or whatever. No, like, I mean, maybe I don't, I don't adopt any of those terms to myself, but I'm actually just advocating for like better journalism. (laughs) Like we're telling bad stories. We're doing a bad job. So what I tell people all the time is if this is suddenly you and you're, and you have to write on this because it's your beat, but you're not so familiar with how to do it is that I think the most basic thing that you can do is imagine that a survivor is going to read what you write Mm -hmm. because they will 100% survivors of sexual violence will read your words. But more than that, the woman you're writing about will read what you write. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of sports guys, they do actually worry over and imagine that the player or the coach could read their words. And so mm. they choose their words carefully to make sure whatever relationship they want to maintain with that person is maintained. Um, do that too for the other side, right? Right. Just that small shift in perspective. Exactly. So the thing I say is that you don't need to you don't need to change your audience. I'm not asking for that. I'm just asking for reporters to expand it when it comes time to write on this. So uh, I know we're getting to the end of our time here, but I do want to touch on the issue of consent because that Mm -hmm. is where you actually start 
the, yes. the section on solutions. And you advocate that we need to do a better job of understanding and teaching and practicing consent. Um, and I sent you an article that Anne Friedman, who's one of my all-time favorites, that she wrote um, about consent. And she, she kind of ha- takes this funny twist on it where she says, like, getting consent continuously throughout a sexual experience is like really sexy to be told that like, yes, keep doing that. Yes. Like I want you to, you know, I won't get too explicit here, but you get the (laughs) point. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so like the, that, the fact that that article was like such a turnaround, whereas we otherwise think of consent as like this thing that, you know, has been like taken away. Yeah. How do stereotypes, about women that we've kind of been discussing throughout this this conversation, being vixens, liars, sexual objects. How do those stereotypes kind of play into this messy relationship that we have with consent? That's a good question. I mean, I think we think lots of things that are wrong about women most of the time in order to get away from actually acknowledging responsibility in a situation. So you know, with consent, a lot of it is like, she was asking for it. Like, I just know she wanted to have sex, like all, but then the flip side, that's sort of, she regretted it. Therefore she's lying has to do with this idea that women are clearly prudes who don't want anyone to know they've had sex. Um, so it's both of that all at once, which is confusing on its face. Um, the other, but like one of the great things that yes means yes does is it re like talk about a new framework, like no means no puts all the burden on the possible victim to stop it. Like they have to give, they have to say no, they have to do all the work on their side. Yes means yes. It's both people. Both people need to be receiving yeses. And so the joke is then how boring that will be. Like, can I kiss your neck? Yes. Can I do this? (laughs) Yes. As if like consent works that way in practice anyway, but but like, yeah, Anne Freeman, of course that's hot, right? That's like dirty talk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you just build these two things in together. Like it becomes enthusiastic, the sex that you guys are having. And like, why, right, don't, like, why don't do you, you want to have that? good sex? Like ask yeah. the person if they like what's going on, adjust right. as necessary. Like, <laughs> exactly. I know yeah. it's so strange. And oh man, consent is so on its face should just be so easy. And we act yeah. like it's so hard. And, and there are nuances absolutely to it. Like, you you know, in order to say yes, you have to be able to say no. In order to say no, you have to be able to say yes. And oftentimes women say yes because they don't think they can say no. And that's very, that can appear confusing, right? Right. Um, right. So we have to be aware of sort of the power situation at play, um, but which is why I think the term enthusiastic is really useful. Like, everyone should be really excited about whatever is happening there. And I also think the other part of it is that we are so obsessed with consent as sex. Like, that, like, this is where consent lies is is around sex. Um, It's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger. Like, I have an eight-year-old son, and we've been teaching him consent since he was four, and it has nothing to do with sex, right? Like, it has to do with creating boundaries, like yeah. me creating a boundary and him respecting it or the other way. He creates a boundary. I respect that. Right. And so I really appreciate um, advocates who work on teaching healthy relationships. And part of that is consent. Part of that is boundary building. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't begin or end at sex. 
Well, I just think that there's like such an opportunity to rebrand and like revolutionize consent is like, go have great sex and you'll have a better time. (laughs) This seems, uh, I mean, just like, just like all hard things, it seems easy. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. um, Okay. So my last question uh, is about being a woman and a sports fan at the same time. And regular listeners of this podcast will know that that is something I battle with and discuss. Um, And you actually said something that I really connected to uh, on the Garbage Time podcast with Katie Nolan. Mm -hmm. And the way you put it, you said something like, um, as women, you know, we exist in an imperfect society every day. And that sports as an extension of that society, you've just learned how to manage Mm-hmm. imperfection in sports the same way that as women we manage imperfections in society and I was like finally like those are the words I've been looking for <laughs> um but my question is do you think that women have a special responsibility to kind of expose these issues have these conversations force these discussions like that's one of the reasons that I remain a sports fan is because I don't think that it does mm-hmm. any good to like to have one less voice challenging the norm yeah. in these areas. But at the same time, is this expectation and burden on women to be the ones to lead that charge? Is that, is that a sexist idea in itself? Yeah, I do think it is. And I, and it's hard, right. As a woman to negotiate that because I do the same thing. Like I continue to write on this because I feel like I need to continue to intervene. And if I don't do it, who will, Right. Are they going to mention victims? Are they going to talk about the women who report? All right, I'm going to do it for that, you know. Um, And then on the flip side of it, I think it is absolute garbage that men leave this to us. And that when women are the one, and it is women, women have been yelling about this for a really, really long time, consistently, loudly, whether or not people are listening to them is a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. Um, They've been carrying this burden, both as the victims of the actual violence, but also the ones telling everyone that it's a problem, we need to deal with it for so long. And so women shouldn't have to boycott a sport, like they shouldn't be the ones who are responsible for telling these stories in the right way. They shouldn't be the ones who are thinking, like when I watch a football team, depending on the team, of course, I will think of a victim whose name I know, mm-hmm. you know? And like, why should that not happen for the male sports reporters who are watching that too? Right. Right. Like where? And so. And then it also just like contributes to this narrative that like women just ruin all the fun in sports. Absolutely. And then also, don't you believe, I? this is what I believe, if uh, like, Thousands of women all together at one time somehow figured out how to do this, organized, announced publicly, we are no longer going to watch football until someone fixes this, that the two reactions would be, who cares? And good. Good. The ladies are gone. And I just, Mm -hmm. I can't believe that it would be like, oh, no, we must now fix this. Like, I just don't think that that would actually be the reaction. Because it's not going to be women. Mm -hmm. What I'm more interested in is changing it so the dudes who do have access 
feel the pressure mm-hmm. to ask the question and know mm-hmm. how to ask the question and what mm-hmm. they should be asking about, mm-hmm. that would be a win for me. I never thought of it this way. Like this is subversive. I see what you're saying. Like you do your podcast. I do this work. Like we do it because we need to keep our voices in it. Like we need to keep pushing at the same time. We shouldn't have to, it shouldn't be on us to be doing that. And that's sort of where I land. Like when people are like, women should boycott football. I'm like, no, men should boycott football because they're the ones messing it up in the first place. So (laughs) (laughs) it'd be real nice if they would fix that for us. I think that there's, I mean, I think one of the reasons that I chose sports as kind of the vehicle to talk about all this stuff is because it's so understandable and relatable. And and it's like, you can talk to almost anybody about something about sports and that sports creates this window into all these much larger, like way more fascinating issues. Absolutely. I agree. So yeah, like, I don't know, I'm not going to stop watching sports because I like them, but also because I think that like they, it's like, it's like the spoonful of sugar with the medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all of that. Well, all right. So to all of our male allies out there, you know, your mission now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed this conversation um, and listeners go pick up her book, go follow her writing. She's very active on Twitter. Um, <laughs> True. And yeah, Jessica, this has been a real pleasure. That'll do it for this week. Thanks again to Jessica for joining me. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show, on Twitter, at NYBF Sports, and be sure to check out the website and sign up for the newsletter at nybfsports.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, good game, listeners. Listeners.